Hello there, I'm James Barr. Welcome back to LSHTM Viral, a new podcast that aims to bring you expert analysis of the coronavirus outbreak and explain the science behind the headlines. In China, nearly 64,000 people have been infected by the coronavirus, and at least 1,380 people have been killed by the disease. The World Health Organization say cases are not rising dramatically outside of China. Our guest today is David Heyman. David is Professor of Disease Epidemiology at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. For more than 20 years, David was based at the World Health Organization in Geneva, where his roles included Assistant Director for Health Security. David, good morning. Thanks so much for joining us. I know you're incredibly busy. First of all, can I just ask you, what do you make of the latest reports and case numbers? Where are we with this coronavirus? Well, you know, in order to diagnose a disease, you must have a series of signs and symptoms that fit with that disease. And early on, the case definition, which puts those signs and symptoms together in China, included people with pneumonia. So from the very beginning, they had very sick people, and they missed a lot of people who didn't have pneumonia, who didn't really get very sick from this, who had symptoms such as a common cold. So they missed them. So early on, mortality figures have been skewed towards the more severe cases. Gradually, they've been able to change their case definition. This occurred about a week ago when they included in that case definition other signs and symptoms and not just pneumonia. So it could be pneumonia or other things. And that gave an increase in the number of cases last week. And what do you think of China's decision to alter how they report those cases? Well, their decision to alter was made on recommendations from WHO. And WHO is the coordinating body that we need to listen to, and they listen to WHO. Then again, this week, they changed their definition, not the case definition, but the criteria for confirmation of disease. Previously, it was nucleic acid testing, PCR, that determined whether or not someone who fit the case definition was a confirmed case. Now they have confirmed cases that have a series of signs and symptoms and a CT scan, which shows pulmonary infection. So they've broadened their case definition again, but they haven't broadened the case definition. What they've done is they've broadened again their diagnostic criteria, the confirmation criteria. And so that adds even more patients, but many of those patients may not be infected with the coronavirus. And where are we just more generally, David, with this with this outbreak? Where do you see it going? Very difficult to tell, I know, because we know still so little about the virus. Next couple of weeks, crucial? The next couple of weeks are very crucial because there are actually two different types of outbreak. There's the epicenter in China, where they're doing drastic measures to try to interrupt transmission to eliminate the virus from human populations. And there are 24 countries outside China which have imported cases from China who are trying to contain the outbreaks where they're occurring so that they don't spread further. So what's important is to watch both those sites, plus a few other sites such as cruise ships, which are also infected. And there are many reasons to follow those closely. China is reporting now that they have a decrease in cases for the last few days. Hopefully that will continue, especially in the provincial areas outside the epicenter. Countries are having quite good success in containing the outbreaks, but they're also providing important information on the natural history of infection, what happens from the time the virus enters the body till the time the patient either survives and becomes cured or dies, and also what we'll be able to tell from these 
countries that are following these outbreaks so closely is the transmissibility of the virus and also confirm that the way that infection occurs is social contact face-to-face -face through droplets. The Chinese authorities have actually just reported that uh, among the cases, uh, six health workers have died and more than 1,700 have been infected since the outbreak began. What does that tell us about the, the brave men and women at the front, on the front line? Well, in all emerging infections, health workers are at greatest risk, initially because they don't recognize the disease and later on because of breaches in their infection control in hospitals. And so health workers get infected and they inadvertently pass infection to others in the hospital, patients and co-workers, and also are the entry point inadvertently into their families in the community. So health workers are a, a very important indicator of an emerging infection when they become infected themselves, but they're also, it's a very tragic that they do become infected. What the disease looks like at present is about the same clinical spectrum and mortality as seasonal influenza each year. And health workers are at risk of getting seasonal influenza. But it's very rare that a health worker dies from seasonal influenza, and it's probably because they have antibody or vaccination, whereas in the new emerging infections, there are no antibodies or no, no, no immunity at all. And so health workers, in the end, get a very serious infection like everyone else. And that's, that's really why a new virus is so dangerous? Absolutely. Health workers are at great risk. And this includes health workers and workers in the family who are taking care of patients. Um, just moving on to uh, your sort of career now. When working for the WHO, you headed the global response to SARS. Is the world responding differently to these threats now? And how has global response evolved in your career? Well, during the SARS outbreak, we were able to take advantage of 21st century innovations. And so we were able to set up virtual groups of clinicians working at outbreak sites, taking care of patients. That gave valuable information about what was working, what was not working, and that information could be put out in real time on the WHO website. We did the same for virologists working together around the world to identify the cause. They put out their results immediately. And we worked also with the epidemiologists in the field doing the investigations, putting out the information that was necessary to strengthen surveillance and understand better techniques of control. That is the same pattern that WHO is following for this outbreak. And they're getting very, very great amounts of information that they're able to work with each day and, again, put out virtual guidance on the website and to brief every day the world on the current status. So WHO is working in the same way that it worked during the SARS outbreak, during this outbreak, and having good success in doing that. In addition, they were able this week to call together researchers from around the world to sit down with funding agencies and with WHO to identify priorities for research in the short term and in the long term. And what were those priorities? Well, those priorities were, um, those priorities varied from better understanding of the epidemiology and the natural history of infection all the way through to long term, better understanding what animals in live markets might be carrying and checking to see if the workers in those markets are being infected on a regular basis, which there's suspicion they are because of uh, the SARS outbreak, which identified infected people in the market who 
probably weren't infected with SARS, but with the coronavirus. And then once that research is all done, helping the Chinese government make some decisions about what to do. And the solution is not making it illegal to sell wild animals because they'll just drive the trade underground. And at this meeting, David, um, the virus has a name. It was announced, uh, COVID-19, perhaps not as catchy as Ebola or, or Zika, but what do you think of the name? And how important is it for a virus to have a, a name? Well, it's very important to have a name for a virus. And, equal, and the most important is to make a name that doesn't stigmatize so that the press or others don't put a name on a disease. You know, the Spanish are still stigmatized because the 1917 influenza was called Spanish flu. And so it's very important to get a name out. The concern was that there might not be a name before others named it. Um, in SARS, um, the director general at WHO and a small team decided immediately to give the disease a name, SARS, and the virus then became known as the SARS coronavirus. That didn't happen in this outbreak, but it happened previously in Ebola when the virologist Carl Johnson, who was there as the father of the outbreak investigations and helped understand that we needed to give a name to that virus which didn't stigmatize, but which was a name which could be used in the future. And so a river next to the mission hospital where the outbreak occurred was the name of the virus. Naming is very important, but today naming is done by a group that looks at it more scientifically, much as they name the influenza viruses, and that's very good as well. Although COVID is not quite so easy to say as Ebola or SARS. <laughs> that's true. The measures countries around the world are taking to prevent outbreaks are understandably being scrutinised, including the use of quarantine. Do you have empathy for governments? These are tough decisions that they're having to make, aren't they? For governments and for, um, for public, the public health community, it's always very difficult to decide which is more important or which should be given more emphasis. Protection of the human rights of an individual or protection of the rights of the collective to not become infected with something which an individual may be carried. And, and this has been a difficulty for time immemorial when there's been attempts to stop outbreaks. And so different governments decide in different ways. The Chinese have decided on a very draconian measure that they're using. Others have decided on quarantining people in facilities where they get, they get good um, support. And others have decided to let people go to their homes, be um, quarantined or stay home on a self-quarantine as long as they check their temperatures and signs and symptoms on a daily basis. So it depends, but it's a big dilemma for governments and for the public health community to make that decision. So David, there's no one-size-fits-all approach to response. Individual governments have to decide. That's right. Individuals have to decide. They have to do their own risk analysis, and then they have to make the interventions appropriate for their own context. And that's what's happening in this outbreak. China has chosen a different way of dealing with its outbreak than has the United Kingdom or Australia or Singapore. So every country has to do its own risk assessment and develop its own strategies for containment. But it's much easier today than it was in the past because there's so much information available to them through WHO, through other collaborators in outbreak investigation, and because of free sharing of data by all. And 
the objective of activities right now in the countries outside of China and within China is to interrupt transmission of this virus and drive it out of human populations if at all possible. Because if it should become endemic, as do the influenza viruses when they come from an animal into human from time to time, it could be a very serious problem in the future. But we're not experiencing a pandemic yet, David? No. Personally, I would not call this a pandemic. What this is, as was SARS, a series of outbreaks occurring in countries around the world, but not yet giving evidence that it's spreading into the general populations, except perhaps in Singapore, where there was a massive number of Chinese who came in who obviously were infected and have infected certain areas around Singapore. But Singapore is doing a heroic effort and hope, hopefully they will be able to interrupt transmission of this virus as well. Fingers crossed. Moving on towards how people can personally protect themselves, there's been lots of chat about face masks. Do they work? Face masks have a role. They're very important in hospital settings for health workers to wear masks. If they wear them properly, they can prevent contaminating patient wounds and different things like that. If there's a virus such as this, they must also wear goggles because those goggles will protect their eye, goggles or a shield in front of their eyes, so that droplets from someone who sneezes or, uh, or coughs don't infect them. And it's sometimes useful for patients to wear these masks as they're going into a hospital to prevent them from coughing and sneezing in the environment as they're going through to the hospital. Wearing masks in the street to prevent transmission is a very ineffective way of wearing a mask. Number one, people generally don't know how to wear them properly. They take them off at times, they leave them on. And in addition, um, the virus is not spread on the streets. It's spread by close social contact of families, of people in enclosed spaces, in vehicles, in different places, not on the streets. So wearing masks on the streets is not a useful way of protecting oneself. But many Asians wear masks as a means of courtesy when they have a cold to prevent themselves from coughing directly on others. And that's a really, that's a really interesting point. So if I'm traveling on the tube, David, is a mask going to be useful? Well, it's, it depends on the situation. Certainly, if you're on the tube and somebody is sneezing or coughing next to you and you're afraid that they might have this infection or any infection for that matter, it would be wise to have the knowledge to be able to separate yourself from that person in some way if you're afraid of becoming sick. Some countries, such as um, some countries and cities, such as Hong Kong, have actually required people on the metro, on the underground, to wear masks in an effort to prevent this enclosed space from being a place where transmission occurs. That would be very effective if there were a lot of people infected on the underground, but with very few people infected, even in Hong Kong, it may not be a measure which is required, but it's a precautionary measure that the government feels is necessary. And many times precautionary measures are made early in an outbreak when all the information that we need to know is not yet known. And perhaps more importantly, just s simple hygiene measures, washing your hands, etc. Simple hygiene is the key to preventing all infections, whether it's a common cold or a COVID-19 infection. And finally, David, during your career, you've worked on many different disease outbreaks. How does 
this outbreak personally can compare? I'm guessing quite a bit has changed over the years in terms of outbreak control, and, and you, you must have seen a lot of those changes. Lots has changed and lots has remained the same in outbreak control. The basics of outbreak control continue to be valid and sound. Identification of persons who are infected and isolating those persons. Identifying contacts of persons who are infected, making sure that they're monitored regularly for fever and isolate themselves from others. And the third is um, sharing data with others who are working on the outbreak response. And finally, communicating that data to the general public and to the policymakers. But today we have many tools which help us in doing all that. For example, in contact tracing, we can now do genetic sequencing in the field and understand maybe where viruses are going or where they've come from. We have better communication technologies that permit instant transmission of information to the World Health Organization, for example, and to others, where it can be used to provide real-time guidance. We have a whole series of new technologies which make those basic outbreak control measures even more effective. Also, we've seen a change in the way communication occurs. In the first outbreak, in the second outbreak of Ebola, for example, in DRC, there was very little interest of the media and the press. But by the time the third outbreak occurred in 1995, the press actually was in a race to be there before the epidemiologists who would be containing the outbreak. Wow. And they were there with their um, satellite uptakes, ready to transmit this information to the world. And the outbreak response had to adapt to this in making sure that the right information was transmitted to those people so it could be provided. Today, that's just become standard operating procedure. The information is provided to the media on a regular basis, and the world is working together to make sure that the information is being shared properly. Of course, there are still some groups that don't want to share information, but most groups are now sharing information, and the medical journals have also agreed that they would publish information immediately online so that those people can get the credit they need in their academic institutions. So collaboration, as important now as it was back in 1976? Collaboration is even more important now than it was in 1976. David, we've been in inviting um, listeners' questions, and I've got one here from, from Dee Harlow. She'd like to ask you about the comparison of COVID-19 to similar influenza strains worldwide, because she's a little bit confused about the idea that the regular flu kills more people, and yet there seems to be a great deal of information and resources directed at controlling COVID-19. Well, one of the differences is that we know a lot about influenza and especially seasonal influenza, and governments have preparedness plans in place. We don't know a lot about this COVID-19 virus yet, and early on we knew very little. And the question when a disease emerges such as this is, what will be the final outcome if it's not eliminated from human populations? Will it become a disease like Ebola or avian influenza? which appears periodically and then disappears back into nature? Or will it be a disease more like influenza and HIV, which emerge from the animal kingdom and then become permanent residents in humans and endemic? Thanks, David, and, and a great question, Dee. Thank you. If you've been inspired by David's interview, he teaches many great courses here at LSHTM, including epidemiology, vaccines, and global health policy. 
You can find out more by visiting our website. So we have some exclusive news for our LSHTM viral listeners. We are launching a free online course on tracking the novel coronavirus. Over three weeks, you will explore how COVID-19 emerged and was identified, what public health measures are in place worldwide, and what is needed to address the outbreak moving forward. The course will begin in March on the FutureLearn platform, but you can register your interest now by going to lshtm.ac.uk forward slash coronavirus. Remember to subscribe to LSHTM Viral and thanks for listening.